Thank you, David, and thank you, Emmaus, for having me this morning. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 10. If you'd like to turn there with me, it should be on the screen as well. Um, But as you're turning there, I just want to extend my gratitude of being with you all this morning. It is always a privilege for us to uh, come here to be able to preach God's word, but also to see and hear what he's doing uh, in the midst of your congregation uh, here as well. Um, John 10 will be in verses uh, 1 through 21. Uh, But before we read God's word, uh, let's go to him and ask for his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, it is in your light that we see all things, uh, and we will not be able to see what you have for us this morning unless by the power of your Spirit you shine your light into our hearts, that we might be able to hear your words that our ears so desperately need to hear. So would you open our ears that we might hear the voice of our Good Shepherd, uh, and that by hearing his voice we might be led into life and life abundant. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen. So John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. 
Thanks be to God. So a couple of years ago, um, my wife and I were on vacation uh, with some of my friends that I graduated uh, seminary with. And it's a, it's a group of four families, and there's a lot of kids. I think there's probably six or seven kids under the age of 10. So whenever we gather, it's a full house. And a couple of years ago, um, the song was very popular, Old Town Road. And I don't know if you are familiar with this song, but I want to set the scene of six or seven under the age of 10 kids running around singing this song that says... Uh, I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't ride no more. And the chorus that they repeated throughout the week was, can't nobody tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. And it's six or seven under the age of 10 children running around the house saying, can't nobody tell me nothing. And as amusing as this was for me, um, not having kids at that point, um, I was struck by the picture uh, that that song and so often so many other songs give to our hearts, uh, that that chorus is often the song of our hearts. Can't nobody tell me nothing. And what we see in this passage um, is Jesus as a good shepherd actually is coming to his people saying there's a different chorus. Um, actually, in fact, young one, six, seven-year-old, somebody can tell you something. <laughs> Clean up your room. Get ready for bed. There are things that you must listen to. And Jesus is the good shepherd is coming to his sheep, as it were, and saying, you will only have life and life abundant if you privilege or prioritize my voice over every other's. And our hearts say, can't nobody tell me nothing. So often we want to prioritize our own voice, our own preferences. And there's so many other places we might hear where good, abundant life is going to come from. Whether it's from advertisements through um, the kind of promises of materialism, uh, whether it's through promises of accomplishment, there's so many other voices that compete for our heart's allegiance. And Jesus comes to us as the good shepherd and says, you must prioritize my voice over every other voice in order that you might have life and have it abundantly. So we're going to see a couple of things of how this abundant life looks in following the good shepherd in this passage. The first thing is the importance of hearing the voice of the good shepherd. Secondly, the exclusivity of this good shepherd. And then finally, the inclusivity of this good shepherd. Our passage is preceded by John chapter 9. And in this uh, chapter right before our passage, the Pharisees uh, thought that they were able to see rightly. They thought that they had a good take on the world. And Jesus disrupts that by healing a man that's been born blind. And they take issue uh, with this healing. And, and Jesus is making the point that when it comes to uh, reality, what determines reality is can you hear my voice, the good shepherd's voice. The Pharisees thought that they were able to see rightly, and he proves to them in their interactions. That's going to be amazing to hear Lenny babbling. <laughs> um, that's my first time hearing that. Um, but what, he, um, what he's doing is he's showing uh, the Pharisees, though you think you claim to see, this blind man actually sees better than you. And you know why? Because he has ears to hear. He can hear the good shepherd's voice. 
That's part of the context of this passage. The priority of hearing the shepherd's voice over against thinking that we can see reality uh, rightly. So we've got to understand that that's part of the conversation that's happening. Another part is the context of this shepherding metaphor, uh, that sheep um, are very common in this day and age when Jesus is teaching, uh, but in all the churches that I've visited or all the students I've discipled, not one has majored in shepherding, not one shepherd have I met uh, at a church. Um, So we need to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on here uh, in this passage. And this metaphor of shepherding and sheep runs throughout So in this text, our uh, sheep are going to be in kind of a gathered place in town. Often a few families would uh, put their sheep together in a fold or a sheep pen, and they would hire a under shepherd to guard the gate, to guard um, all the sheep from any dangers that might uh, happen. And so this under shepherd would stand there and be a watchman for any harm uh, that might come to the sheep. And and further context that we need to understand is often the leaders of God's people throughout the Old Testament were compared to shepherds. They were compared to those that were meant to take care of uh, the sheep. And so often they failed. These leaders would not protect God's people. In fact, uh, in one of the most stinging assessments of the leader's failure is found in Ezekiel 34, where God is showing that their performance has been subpar. And in fact, it's their greed that they have tried to enrich themselves off of God's people, off of the sheep, and they have been false shepherds. And so God says, I myself will be my people's shepherd. Your failure is so great that I myself must be your shepherd. More on that in a moment. But in our passage, that is being put front and center, this this metaphor. Um, And he's saying these leaders, they are more interested in enriching themselves um, off of the value of the sheep rather than guiding, protecting, and nurturing them. And rather than these leaders having ears to hear the voice of the good shepherd, the one that they were meant to listen to and to follow, they are actually excluding the sheep from the very presence of God i.e. the blind man, excluding him, kicking him out of the temple that he might not experience the presence of God, the very thing that the leaders were entrusted to do. And so in our passage, these leaders, though they think they're in the right, though they think they see reality rightly, Jesus is calling them thieves and robbers. We see that in verse 1. This is a stinging indictment of their leadership of what they've been called to do to protect the sheep. And sheep were worth protecting. That's the other thing we need to understand, is that sheep are incredibly valuable, uh, but they also are incredibly vulnerable, incredibly dumb animals. And so we have this picture of incredibly valuable animals that are worth protecting, worth guarding, and yet incredibly vulnerable and dumb animals. I don't know if y'all have seen a video on YouTube that I think perfectly captures this. But there is a road, and next to the road, there is a trench that looks like it's been dug for some piping or something. It's about a foot wide, six feet down. And the video starts with just looking at two little hooves sticking out of the top of this trench. And the guy comes upon these two hooves, and he pulls this sheep out of this trench 
to which the sheep is ecstatic that it's been freed and kind of bounces twice and then tries to hop back over the trench and just dives right back into it. Sheep are that vulnerable to getting lost, to getting trapped. Um, They are incredibly vulnerable and dumb animals, and yet they're also incredibly valuable. The shepherd knows the sheep, and it says that the shepherd leads them by his voice. So that's the first thing that I think we really need to understand about this passage is the importance of the voice of the good shepherd. It it runs throughout as a theme. We see it in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then in verse 16, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. You see, unlike Western shepherds that would use dogs or would drive the sheep from behind, uh, in this context, uh, in Jesus' day, the shepherds would walk before the sheep, and the sheep would recognize the shepherd by the sound of the shepherd's voice. They would often have a sound to alert their specific sheep if they were mingled in a group. And here, Jesus as the good shepherd goes one step further and says, I actually know all of my sheep intimately by name, and they know my voice, and I call them each by name. The sheep know his voice, and Jesus knows each of his sheep. And so as we consider this theme, a question should arise in our hearts then. How then? How do we hear the good shepherd's voice? Well, since this good shepherd had laid down his life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, gave the church apostles, gave the early church leaders, since that time, the way that we hear this good shepherd's voice is through his word, through scripture. And there's a number of ways that we might interact with Scripture, um, whether through the preaching of God's Word, through meditating on it, through praying Scripture. Uh, But one of the most common ways is just through reading it, through reading Scripture. This is where we must be exposed to the Good Shepherd's voice over and over again. But we also have to be cautious because there is a way that we can read the Bible unbiblically that if we're not careful, it's actually going to lead to us burning out and being discouraged in our interactions with Scripture. Uh, Or maybe even worse, um, coming to false or wrong conclusions about what it teaches. So we need to have lenses of how am I to engage Scripture that I might know that I'm hearing the Good Shepherd's uh, voice. It's an important question. We just came back from uh, our summer conference with Reform University Fellowship with RUF. It's like the end of the year event where schools from all over the country gather right outside Panama City for kind of a stress-free week for students at the beach after exams. There's seminars in the morning. Uh, there's full day of free time on the beach and then an evening speaker at night. And in the morning, these seminars have a bunch of different topics, but one of them this week, or this past week, was how to read the Bible. And over 250 students showed up to this one. Uh, There's probably 1,000 students at this conference, 14 other um, seminars, and 250 of them showed up to this one of how can I read the Bible. In the words of this passage, how can I hear the voice of my shepherd? It's an important question for every uh, Christian uh, to know. And so I wanted to give just eight quick 
um, kind of questions that you can bring to your Bible reading, that when you sit down, that you can know that as I'm approaching Scripture, I might hear the Good Shepherd's voice. This first question is, what do I learn about this passage about God? That's not the most natural question for us to start with. So often we approach scripture of tell me exactly what I need to do. Let me, let me approach scripture as a rule book or a to-do list. Um, and it's not the, the fruitful place to start. We are not the main characters of scripture. God is. God and who he is and his actions and character. So beginning our Bible reading, whatever passage we're in with, what do I learn about God in this passage, in this text? It's an important place to start. And secondly, what do I learn about people? Now, while we people are not the main characters of the Bible, um, it does teach that we are the pinnacle of his creation, made in his image, and are at the center of his purposes. We see that in Psalm 8 and throughout Scripture. And so when we read Scripture, we need to think through, what does this passage say about who we are as divine image bearers? And what does this passage say about our fallen condition? How our um, condition has been ordered outside of the way that God originally designed it, bent towards chaos rather than order. For example, if you were to do that with our present passage, asking, what does this teach about people? Well, it would say that we are sheep. We are incredibly valuable. Our image bearerness is we have great dignity and worth before God. And yet, at the same time, we also are fallen. We are prone to get lost, prone uh, to get hurt, prone to needing per- protection, prone to be dirty, prone to be filthy. And we are at mortal danger unless the shepherd lays down his life for us. That's what we learn about who people are in this passage. Third, what do I learn about relating to God? How does this passage teach me that I am to relate to God? And a great place to start is through praise. What might I praise God for in this passage? Scripture says that in God's sanctuary, the gates are named praise. Isaiah 60, 18. Said another way, praise is the entrance into God's presence. So if we start with praise, we are entering in to God's presence And then when we see and praise him for who he is, for what he's done, uh, then we can ask, how am I to relate to him that I don't live up to this? What do I need to confess? What do I need to repent of as I engage his word? What am I to believe differently in light of this passage? How am I to consider any promises in this passage are to affect my life? What does it teach me of how I am to relate to him, to God? And then finally, what do I learn about relating to others? That's the, that's the last uh, question of just inspection of the text. What do I learn about relating to others? Christ has redeemed us not only as individuals in relationship with him, but he's brought us into a flock, into a fold to relate to others. So how does this passage teach me that I might relate to family, to friends, to roommates, uh, to, to others in my life? What might it say about pursuing reconciliation uh, with others? And then once we've, we've learned and inspected the text for what it says about God, what it says about us, and how we are to relate to God and others, then we can move into questions of application. Okay, where, uh, where am I to go? What am I to do? What am I to believe? And those are the next questions. What does God want me to understand or think? We think wrongly all the time. We have a lot of stinking thinking. And 
And we need scripture to inform us of what right thinking is. And then along the same lines, what does God want me to believe? This might sound a similar question, uh, but throughout the gospel of John and throughout scripture, belief is not only having right thinking, but then moving your life to, to rest, to fully trust, to believe into the reality that scripture teaches that our whole life is staked on um, the, the teaching of scripture or the voice of this shepherd. Next, what does God want me to desire in this passage? We are not just thinking beings, brains on a stick. Uh, we are human beings with strong desires, with loves and affections uh, that have been disordered in our fallen condition and need to be reordered in Christ. We need to have right desire, and Scripture holds out ways that our desires might be reordered. And then finally, what does God in this passage want me to do? I said it's not the best place to start, but we still must ask uh, that question. What is this passage leading me uh, to do? Because once we allow God's word to change the way we think, to change the way we believe, to change the way we desire, then we are in a position that it might become clear what we are called to do in light of who he is, in light of what he's done for us. This is how we can consistently hear our good shepherd voice. Another way, and, and the primary way that the church throughout its history has actually heard the good shepherd's voice is through the reading and preaching of God's word in, in the gatherings. Um, this is a primary way to sit under the reading and preaching of his word in his church to hear his voice. However, not all churches on every corner are created equal. And so we have to have discernment over uh, what makes a good church to be able to sit under and know that I'm going to hear the voice of the shepherd in the preaching and the teaching of this church. In college ministry, I'm so grateful uh, when I get students who have grown up in the church. And I love, David, that you celebrate the students who are graduating and um, who have grown up in the church and they're being exposed to good Bible preaching. Because when they get to uh, college, they have discernment. They know what to be looking for. And it's such a gift. So how do you discern that? Well, you need a good pastor, one that is a shepherd who's united to the good shepherd, who's Bible-believing and is preaching Christ, holding out Christ to you every week, week in and week out. This is what it looks like to consistently get to hear the good shepherd's voice. And one, one point of discernment of how do I know if my pastor is doing that um, is understanding this second point, the exclusivity of the good shepherd. A good church, a good pastor is going to faithfully hold out to you what scripture says about Christ. If the good shepherd is being presented, his words, what he says about himself are going to be presented. And in this passage, uh, there's at least two very exclusive claims that Christ makes about himself that we need to understand. Verse nine says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. Said, said in other parts of scripture, the same idea um, says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Churches that need to be avoided are the churches that look at passages like this and they try and do interpretive gymnastics around what Jesus is actually saying about himself. They try and bend his words to say, to, to soften them, to, to make them say something that they actually are not saying. But scripture, both in this passage and in so many other places, holds out Jesus as the only way for salvation. He is the door who leads to salvation. He is the gate, the narrow gate that leads to life in him and him alone. So a faithful preacher, a faithful church is going to hold out Christ's exclusivity uh, to their people. The other exclusive claim that we see here is in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, some people will take this to say, this is just an example of what love is, to lay down your life. And that is what Jesus as a good shepherd is. He's a good example. But that doesn't capture the heart of this passage. One um, commentator put it this way, the shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as an example, throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and futile display while bellowing as he falls, see how much I love you. No, the assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger and that in their defense, the shepherd loses his life, that by his death, they are saved. That and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. So what makes Jesus qualified to make this claim, to be the good shepherd? Well, I already mentioned contextually, we need to understand the Old Testament has this metaphor for um, the leaders of God's people being shepherds. Um, and in the Old Testament, we, we see this tension that God has appointed human shepherds over his people. And yet, as I read in Ezekiel 34, God also promises that he himself is going to be their shepherd. We see this all over the Old Testament. And so when Jesus makes this claim to be the good shepherd, the Pharisees would have known that that's just oozing with biblical significance. A couple of places that their minds might have gone is in Numbers 27.15, when Moses is praying for a human successor to lead the people uh, like a shepherd. And Joshua is appointed, and Joshua translated in Greek is actually Jesus. Speaking of, of, of David, the Psalms uh, put it this way, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. This human shepherd that is appointed by God. But then famously in Psalm 23, God himself, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or we read in Psalm 100, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There's so many more we could turn to, but what I want you to see is that in scripture, this shepherd of God's people is both fully God and both fully man. It's the only way. The good shepherd must be both, and it is only Jesus who fulfills both. It's why he can make this claim of, I am the good shepherd. One of my favorite places in the Old Testament where uh, his nearness, the, the humanity, the, the imminence of God comes together with his greatness and his majesty is in Isaiah 40, uh, verses 11 through 15. I asked them to put it on the screen so you could follow along. But it reads this way. He will, he will tend his flock 
like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I was reminded of this passage uh, the other day. Just hold it. My daughter's at this perfect age of cuteness, of cuddleability, of chubbiness. And I was just holding her just right in, in my arms as we were getting ready for bed. And I was reminded of just the nearness of, of God, that he is promising in this passage to draw all that are his to his bosom, to, to his embrace. It's incredibly near. And yet this passage goes on uh, to read, who is measured? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? This is profound imagery of his greatness. It's this picture of all the water in all of creation can be held in the hollow of this shepherd's hand. Lake Apopka, Lake Eola, Gulf of Mexico, Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, just all right in the hollow of his hand. Who has measured the heavens like a span? A span is the distance between thumb and pinky stretched out. He, this good shepherd, has measured the heavens, the universe, with a span of his hand. This is incomparable greatness of who this shepherd is. And we must be reminded of this all the time because we so often forget. We so often get consumed with our own um, envisions of our own greatness or or what rests on our shoulders, uh, the tasks, the responsibilities that we feel like we carry and the attempts that we make for self-sufficiency. We've got to be reminded of the greatness of God. Even in the biggest and largest roles with the most responsibilities, people need to be reminded of this. I love this illustration. Uh, President Theodore Roosevelt, he had a routine, uh, almost a ritual that every now and then, uh, along with the naturalist William Beebe, he would step outside at night at dark and he would look into the night sky and you'd find this faint spot of light at the lower left-hand corner of Pegasus constellation. And then one of them, after finding it, would recite... That is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our own. There would then be a pause, and then Roosevelt would grin and say, now I think we feel small enough. Let's go to bed. And this image I love because it's the president who needs to be reminded of his smallness, of what actually is controlling the universe, what actually is um, in control, the one who measures the heavens, the universe, 175,000 light years in the span of his hand. This is how big and great this good shepherd is. It continues, this passage continues, enclose the depths of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What this saying is there has never been a moment in the span of history that God has need of a consultant. He has never once needed to say, I'm at a loss. Can I get your take on this? He has never once needed a consultant. And this passage continues to lay out his greatness. It says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket 
and are counted as the dust on the scales. I don't know if y'all have ever had to carry buckets of water, maybe for mixing concrete or something. Um, but the, the source of water is rarely right next to where you're mixing it. So you're carrying these buckets of water, and inevitably, a drop or uh, a little bit's going to slosh out. And you would never, carrying these heavy buckets, go back and be like, oh, no, I, I need that drop. I need to refill that bucket. Um, and, and the image here is that God doesn't need the nations. They're but of a drop of a bucket. They're like dust on the scales. How many of you, before weighing yourself, wipe down the scale to make sure that it's exactly right? You might, but um, it's, it's insignificant. It's inconsequential. And so what this passage is saying is that in the greatness of God, this, this shepherd who is so near and so great doesn't need the nations. The people of the earth are of zero consequence to him. He doesn't need them. So what then is it saying if he doesn't need the people, the nations, if he doesn't need sheep for his flock? Well, it means he wants them. It means that he's after them. And it's only Jesus, it's only this good shepherd, fully God, fully man, that can gather them. He is after his own. And the good shepherd will gather all of his people to himself. We see this in our passage, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Do you hear that? Exclusivity. Only Jesus shares this relationship with God the father. He is the one-of-a-kind son, perfect in obedience, even to the point of death, laying down his life. And this death is not a mere example of his love. For what good shepherd would intentionally die, leaving his flock to be vulnerable to attack? No, the good shepherd lays down his life here because his sheep are in mortal danger, and his laying down his life is the only way to protect them. It is the only way to deliver them from sure destruction. That is the exclusivity of Jesus as the good shepherd here. That is only him that can do this. He is that one-of-a-kind shepherd. God the Son sent by the Father to be the appointed human shepherd of the sheep. It can only be him. Verse 17 goes on um, about this exclusive mission that Jesus has received from the Father. And Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this cannot mean that the Father needed the cross in order for the Father to love the Son. It is not that the Father withholds his love from Jesus until Jesus agrees to give up his life on the cross and rise again. Rather, the the love of Father to the Son is eternally linked. It is eternally connected to this unqualified obedience that the Son freely offers in utter dependence upon him. It is the greatest act of obedience that has ever happened. And Jesus does it willingly. He willingly goes to bear yours and my shame. He willingly goes to bear the isolation, to bear the rejection of death. He willingly takes on the sin and the curse that was due us and lays down his life that was reserved for us, the wrath of God, but was reserved for him, the lamb of God, laying down his life that he might protect the sheep. 
John Calvin, in commenting on the mystery of the love displayed in this passage, puts it this way. Our salvation is dearer to the Son than his own life. Here is a wonderful commendation of there, that is the Father and the Son's goodness to us, which should ravish our whole souls into admiration, that God not only extends to us the love due to the Son, but ascribes to us as the final cause. Did you catch what he's saying? Not, not only does God the Father extend to you the very same love that he has for his beloved Son, but he's saying that his love for you was the cause of him sending his Son. In other words, the Father sends Christ as the Good Shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep out of an abundance of love for the world. And Christ, as the Good Shepherd, willingly goes, perfectly ob- obedient, willingly lays down his life because you are dearer to him than his very life. That's why he does it as the good shepherd. And it's exclusive in that it was only him that could accomplish this. It is only him that could do it. But it is also astonishingly inclusive in the height and the depth and the breadth and the width that this salvation extends to all that would come to him with empty hands of faith. And that's our final point, the inclusivity of the good shepherd. Verse 16 puts it this way, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Reminder of this context, the Pharisees have just excluded a blind man from the temple, from the very presence of God. And Jesus' response to this act is that he goes and finds this blind man after hearing that he's been kicked out of the temple representing the presence of God. He makes sure that this blind man knows exactly who he is as the son of man, as the good shepherd. He knows who are his and his own know him. Far from the the new heavens and the new earth uh, being a ghost town, sparsely populated, uh, the new heavens and new earth are going to be variety of tribes, people's backgrounds, people's languages, people's ailments, Every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be represented in this flock that Jesus as the Good Shepherd is gathering to himself. The the variety and diversity of the stories of grace that are going to be represented in that people, we can only even imagine. And Jesus is doing it as the Good Shepherd. He's committed to it. He says here, I must, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus does not miss one that is his. He will bring them all to himself. And maybe you're here and you've never been convinced of the the truth of Christianity. And and maybe in hearing this, you actually feel compelled to believe this for the first time. Maybe you find yourself wanting to believe this. But maybe you also feel yourself listening to another voice that says, no, actually, I've I've run too far off. I'm too far gone. I've wandered. I've gotten lost too many times. And I would just say to you, do you suppose that this good shepherd who has stretched out the heavens with a span of his hand, are his arms too short to reach you, to gather you from wherever you've run to and to draw you in? Maybe you say, well, it's not that I've just run far off. It's that I've run to filthy things. I'm unclean. I'm dirty. How could he clean me? And I would ask, do you suppose that this good shepherd who holds 
all the waters in the hollow of his hand, that those hands are, Im- are impotent, are powerless to cleanse you. Do you suppose that? Or maybe you say, um, well, it's not that I've run far off or that I feel uh, dirty. I just have too many doubts. I have too many questions. Um, and I don't think I can get them all answered in order for me to really be compelled to believe. And I would just ask, do you suppose that this good shepherd who has not had a need for a consultant his whole life has never stopped and said, I'm at a loss. Can I get your take on something? Do you suppose that this good shepherd might actually be big enough to withstand your questions and your doubts? But maybe you say, I actually am compelled to believe right now, but I've always viewed the religious as kind of needy and dependent. Um, and I've really prided myself in my self-sufficiency, um, in, in my ability to not be dependent on others. Maybe that's the way uh, that you view uh, religion. And I would just say, do you suppose that the good shepherd, who the people of the earth, the, the, the sheep uh, of, of this earth, who are but of a drop in a bucket, who are like dust on the scales, that he looks at you and is impressed by anything that he finds in you that he needs, and that if he wants you, he will have you, that he is after you, that he is after his own, and he will, he must gather them. You're wandering how far you've run, your filthiness, um, the things that you've run to, the doubts, the questions that you have, uh, the, the sins that repeatedly show up in your heart that repeatedly plague you, they are no match for the must of the good shepherd here. He will gather you to himself, draw you to his very closest, most intimate area, his chest to hold you. He is gathering all who are his. This is both a promise and an invitation this morning. Let's pray. Father, in your great love for the Son and for uh, all that are yours, you sent your Son that we might have life and have it abundantly. Would you, Father, by the power of your Spirit, find us um, with ears to hear your voice this morning, to hear this good news uh, that is not up to us, that is not up to our ability to clean ourselves up or find our way home, uh, but it is up to your son, the good shepherd, who has gone to amazing lengths to find us, to pursue us, and to draw us to himself. Would our hearts find rest in this good news this morning? We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.